With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. David James is an Australian finance and business journalist at 30 plus years experience. But if you listen to this program, you should know that by now because David has been on with us here at RCR quite a few times, a number of times now, two or three. So he's back for our Money Talk segment again for this week while Farzan Irani finishes his trip to India. David, good to have you back. Thanks for coming back on. Good to be back. Okay, so we're interested in finding out more about... Um, okay, so uh, the world economy goes over. Uh, there's a big collapse. People are left um, with huge unpaid debts, da-da-da. But there's another way, is there? That debt can be swapped <clears throat> out for equity. Yeah, Um this is a very speculative thing on my part, um, but I think we're going into uncharted waters because I don't think like debt markets breaking is not anything but unusual. It's been going on for thousands of years, but it's never been a global debt burden like this. Right. <clears throat> um, what normally happens and has happened in the past is you get a default of some sort in, you know, after they just forgive the debts and start again. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to see the history of that, Michael Hudson's book called Forgive Us Our Debts is very good on that. Um, but I, it occurs to me, um, during the in the 1980s, <clears throat> there was a Latin American debt crisis, which um, was basically European and, and American banks assuming that governments would never default on their debt and therefore, they could lend with impunity and everything would be fine and they'd make a lot of money. And tragically, um, some of the, the Latin American politicians and the senior bureaucrats um, were a little less than scrupulous and a lot of them just took the money. Right, okay. And in some cases, just parked it back in the in the bank's as deposits in the banks that actually made, made the loans to the country in the first place. Okay, so okay, interesting. <laughs> it was, yeah. And and this caused um, a lot of default. It doesn't take much many defaults for banks to get into big trouble, right? Like because private banks, it, you know, like two percent or something, or three percent, and you're really in trouble, right? Gee, okay, um, because they lend out far more than they have as deposits, like twenty times, you know, um, and so. The, it was the first really serious banking crisis in the West. We've had series of them ever since. And I can remember <clears throat> um, at the time, they decided that the way out of it was what they called a debt for equity swap. Now, I've been thinking about that ever since. Um, and uh, I, I, before we sort of go a little further, um, I think it's a good idea to define the difference between debt and equity. Yeah, good, um, good. Debt has an interest rate on it, and the risk lies with the recipient of the capital. Um, usually the lender, the, usually a bank, 
as collateral, and so they've mitigated their risk, and all the risk is on the recipient. Yep. If, the, if something goes wrong, they're in trouble, and they finish up bankrupt or whatever, right? <clears throat> and that's that's um, essentially an adversarial sort of a relationship um, between the provider and the recipient. Equity is completely different. Um, the the opposite. The provider of the capital takes the risk of losing everything. Like if a company, if you buy shares in a company and the company goes down, the last people to get any money are the shareholders. Everybody else gets it before, usually the shareholders get nothing. So all the risk lies with the equity provider, the provider of the capital, and there's much less risk, much less pressure on the recipient of the capital. Now, I used to work for what was then Australia's Top stockbroker, stockbroker JB Weir, and I can recall, and it, and it used to fascinate me. And I've never had a good answer to this question, never since. But they used to give us graphs, because in the private client department, particularly, showing that over time, equity always outperforms debt and property. Okay. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Now, possibly with the property bubbles in the West. In the last 20 years, that might be a little different, but it was a huge difference, huge. And I remember thinking, why? Why does equity do so much better? And I've speculated and mused about it ever since. And it's got something to do with trust. There's a much higher level. In order to get money from an an equity provider, you have to trust them a lot. There has to be a lot more trust. Yeah. A lot and more engagement, more knowledge yeah. about, and and then you think part. you think about the word share shares. Yeah, they Generally. share in the outcome. Yeah, and um, and then I sort of follow that trail, sort of down the, the sort of history pathway, <clears throat> and ask the question: Where did share markets come from? This is the big public share markets because. They're largely an English-speaking phenomenon. I think it was invented in Holland initially. The France had them, but the Europeans don't have big stock markets. They have mainly debt markets, right? Um, they manipulate the debt so it's a little bit more like equity, but they don't have big stock markets. The big stock markets are in the UK, Australasia, in you know, proportion to the economy, and, of course, the massive one is in the United States. And I asked, I wondered why. And then I looked at the names of the companies that had the big shareholdings in the stock market. And that was the clue. It's companies like National Mutual, Australian Mutual Providence Society. It's all these words around providence and mutuality and trust and shares. Interesting. Yep. And I never bothered. Actually, I know someone who did actually do this history, and I think I'm broadly right. It was because the Industrial Revolution started in the north of England in the 19th century, as we know, you know, like the huge factories and so on. Yeah. And in the north, they were locked out of the the financial markets in London because they were lower class and in the north, right? I see, yeah. So, so what they did was establish things like co-ops, mutual funds, insurance, um, credit unions, which were very heavily equity-based. So that's where all that came from? It is. 
It is. And go. some of the earliest ones actually were in Australia. Okay. Like uh, National Mutual, <clears throat> probably New Zealand too. Yeah. Um, I haven't looked at it in New Zealand. but um, And they were fundamentally equity rather than debt-based, right? <clears throat> and um, eventually that became the huge stock markets. And, of course, that went across the Atlantic and um, became the huge American stock market which is the biggest in the world. I mean, if you go down Elizabeth Street in... in um, they were, they were, a lot of them were non-conformists, religious non-conformists, which was another reason they were locked out of London, right? Um, the London bank markets. If you could walk down Elizabeth Street in Melbourne and look up the corner of Burke Street, I think, and you'll see um, the Oddfellows <laughs> building, <laughs> and you'll see other, elsewhere there's the Shakers. And, and, yeah. <clears throat> They were the people forming the capital behind the Industrial Revolution. Right. And it was it was substantially equity capital. Now, so um, I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I um, went down the rabbit hole a bit further and watched some of the financial crises and realised that equity markets behave completely differently to debt markets. <clears throat> They're like if you have a crisis, you have an economic crisis, which we're about. I'm pretty sure I'm going, we're going to see soon enough. Equity markets act like a shock absorber. They can reprice and take a shock without breaking, whereas debt markets don't. Yep, um, they break, especially in with banks. The bank just goes down, right? Yep. Um, part of the reason is with an equity market, you don't have to sell. You can just hang on. Yeah, because it's uh, the long, long, more longer term thinking, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Of the but, long but haul. Yeah. With the, with this requirement to continually pay down interest and principal in a debt market, you have no such luxury, and it doesn't. You can but you can delay it, but soon enough, banks start to go down. So what 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 <clears> you're <throat> saying is that it's it's more sensible. To what? Because it seems like uh, debt is is the default, right? The adversarial system. Mm. Why do you think that's there's been a preference to that? Because it's worked up to a certain amount of time. Does it align with certain, you know, the <clears throat> alien nature of, you know, um, Darwinian sort of uh, capitalism, whatever? Um, how come it's? I don't. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Actually, yeah. I mean, it, it goes back an awfully long way. Yeah. Um, I know in the medieval times there was the admonition against usury, um, you know, debt. So they got rounded by essentially getting non-Christians to to manage the markets, you know, um, yeah. which is well documented. That that's a good question. Um, but what I I have another theory. Yep, which is. Just more speculation, really. But I think, you know, that Marx predicted the collapse of capitalism. Mm. Um, he was thinking debt. Right. And he was probably right had it just been debt. But he was looking at the Industrial Revolution and saying it's going to collapse, right? He, he would never have anticipated or even probably understood particularly the massive increase in equity that was going on at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. And I think that's probably why he finished up being wrong. Yeah. I, th I think it's the great untold story 
of capitalism, particularly in the English-speaking world, is the importance of equity. Um, like we, we tend to, when they're discussing, like Michael Hudson, for example, who's very, very good commentator, um, he, when he's talking about the problems in debt, he, he tends to assume that the only other type of money you can have is government money. So right. you, you get you yeah. get this polarity between debt-based capitalism and government funding, you know, socialism. And government funding has to either come out of tax revenue or it's another form of debt because governments have to issue bonds to balance the budget. I mean, that is debt, right? <clears throat> um, and it's that that binary is very, very commonly assumed to be the only two options. We, you know, you know it sort of had kind of defines left wing and right wing, right? Yeah, left yeah. wings government funding, right wings, you know, capitalism. There's very little attention paid to the third option, which is equity, which is neither left nor right, and is massively important and far more successful as a way of funding industry than than debt or and and government. So. Um, it's really worth a lot of it, a great deal of attention. Now, as a, as a way of thinking about funding industry, now my um, exhibit number one is New Zealand exhibit. Okay. Yeah, great. In in the world. Okay. At Fonterra. Yeah. Which is a, which is a co-op. Yes, it is. <clears throat> equity, equity fund. Yeah. Co-ops are equity funded. Now, <laughs> I understand that one of the previous recent CEOs started to increase the debt, and the company got into a bit of trouble. Hmm. Um, and, and they got rid of that problem and gone back to their equity-based structure. Um, but I can recall this was a and a former CEO of Bonlac, which is an Australian dairy company. Um, saying one of the silliest things I've ever heard, I think, um, saying that the problem with Fonterra is it's a co-op, they should demutualize it, and then it could raise lots more capital, especially debt capital, and then, you know, New Zealand would be fantastic. <laughs> New Zealand would do much better. And I'm thinking, okay, you've got all these demutualized dairy companies in Australia, privatized and whatever. Australia's dairy industry is absolute rubbish, really, really bad and underperforming and Fonterra is number two behind Nestle in the world as a global dairy company so which one makes more sense you know? yeah well I guess it's what's wrong obvious. with the co-op structure right nothing in fact on the contrary it's done really really well and it, the irony was that Fonterra bought Bonlac eventually yeah there you go and most um, of the Australian yeah. dairy industry is owned by Canadians now oh dear even possibly even worse um so one thing you can't do with equity, though, is you can't create it out of thin air, can you? Like you can with, um, with debt, because um, you know the no, banks true, are, are, are leveraging true. huge lending off a uh, way smaller uh, deposit base. Yeah, and that's and true. while that's working well, they can create <laughs> just from the facilitation process can create money for themselves, right? And and they they can that can become equity and hard assets, I suppose. But well, um, you can't do that that with equity, can you? That's a good point. Um, the financialization that we witnessed 
in the last 20 years has all been around debt. You know, the, whether it's banks just inventing, just lending like with their ears pinned back, all the, the new forms of money that they've invented, the derivatives, all that stuff. That's all kind of a – like a derivative is a kind of leverage, a kind of debt. Like you put up a $1,000 and you can make a million-dollar bet, right? Like if you go to, you know, some of the – what's it called? CEC markets – what they advertise in Australia, you can make an, a massive bet with only a small amount of money up front. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right, which is probably why it looks like the equity markets aren't that big because they haven't been finan- – they can't be financialized that way. It's a much more legitimate form of money because a big part of the problem in the last 22 decades is just people making money out of money out of money out of money yeah as if as if that makes any sense <laughs> it doesn't you know yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the only thing that saved us from complete insanity is i think is the nobody's sort of measures or particularly notices the incredible improvements in industrial efficiency just been going on. every year it gets better and better and better yeah yeah and it I can remember back to my childhood, you know, buying a fridge was a major event. Yeah, it was. Buying any household appliance was. TV was like twelve, fifteen hundred dollar purchase. It took years for the family to save. Well, now it's pocket money. Yeah. And that's the massive improvement in efficiency that goes unmeasured. But it's massive. It's huge. But um, just it's worth pointing out that the way that um, professional investors work, in particularly in the, in the English-speaking world, these, these are, you know, the big, big um, people investing the big money, is they diversify between asset classes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they they diversify between equity shares. Um, Bonds and maybe some other stuff, maybe property. Tend not to be as much in property. Um, and people point out that the equity markets are smaller than the bond markets for the reasons you just said. But that's not really the point. The point is that they can diversify their asset investments and so that equity plays an enormously important role in how the, the investment markets work. And when you've got equity, you can do that. When you haven't, you can't. Right? Um, <coughs> so equity equities it's hard to find too many problems with equity. It's very easy to find a lot of problems with debt. Um, and I think we're heading into massive debt defaults or something yeah which will cause chaos and and so i went going back to um that phrase debt debt for equity swap in um in the 1980s i looked into it a little bit and found out that really wasn't a debt for equity swap it was just a phrase they came up with it was the banks either getting their hands on Latin American assets as collateral, which they would sell off to sort of um, prevent default. Mm. Or it was a v- similar to um, the, the, the central bank started buying back the government bonds, 
the Latin American said, which is a bit similar to what they call quantitative easing now. And they called that a debt for equity swap. Um, oh, it wow. wasn't really. It was really just a way of fiddling the debt. Um, Latin America has no stock markets right? <clears throat> um, to speak of. I mean, there are other forms of equity. There's, it's not just the public markets. There's private equity where people, and that's they're quite big, uh, where people put just put private money into a company and privately. Um, I think charity and philanthropy are type of equity. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they tend to have a less financial, but they, they're quite big too. Um, you, you're looking for a social result or a, um, I mean, or something more pernicious, like a, yeah. in, the case of, in the case of Bill Gates. Um, yeah. But what he put into the foundation was equity. I mean, what Soros puts into his wickedness is equity, you know. So it's not all good. <clears throat> um, yeah, right. Um, uh, but then you've got uh, institutions. I'm thinking of, you know, the um, the money that's lent to nations, maybe the developing nations, like the World Bank. Mm-hmm. Do they do they take equity stakes in infrastructure? No. And and that's some um, something I've never understood because they they understand the markets, right? I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, they're financial experts. And I've never understood why the hell do they make loans, especially loans in US dollars, especially when, um, because they're in US dollars a lot of the time to these weaker economies, that if their currency collapses, they're completely screwed, as in the Asian financial crisis. And then I read that book, um, I Was an Economic Hitman. Have you ever come across that? No, I haven't. No, no. Um, it's really worth a read. Uh, it was about Indonesia and the IMF's behaviour, right? With, with the IMF, um, with Indonesia, and this guy was front, you know, in this in the middle of it, and basically they were using the debt to screw Indonesia for geopolitical reasons. Well, that's what I was thinking. That's why you would do it the way it's being done. You have a nation on on their knees, and you can basically own them, right? That's exactly what happened with Indonesia. Yeah. And it's really worth reading that book just to see that how cynical it is. I mean, you've got to laugh when you see the Americans complaining about the Chinese making loans and, you know, um, they may use it for geopolitical ends. And you think, well, America's been doing that since the Second yeah. World War. Yeah, but don't they also <laughs> invest in, in – I mean, I could be naive, but um, they invest – it's sort of done through infrastructure projects – you well, know, they're always they... called they're always called loans. They often finish up being a type of equity because the loans don't get paid. Yeah, but what so they, they own do... a bit of the railway line or the highway or the tunnel or that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what they should do, and I actually ran in when I, I spent a lot of quite a few years writing on Papua New Guinea um, for a company, and and um, uh, realised that. Finally understood the Papua New Guinea financial system when I realised they didn't have a financial system. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to an IMF guy at a, at a, at a dinner um, who was working in Papua New Guinea, and he understood it. And he was thinking he was trying to work on a way to get the IMF loans to be IMF equity on the Papua, the tiny Papua New Guinea stock market. That's what they should do. They should use the money to list a company on the stock market. Yeah. Because because every country has a stock market. And then everyone can participate. Everyone, yeah. And then you don't have the pressure. 
and it doesn't come out of government government um, out of the government's budget because the only way they can pay back the the loans are made to the to the to the state, and so the government has to find money in its budget to pay the interest, which often they can't do. Right? Mm. <clears throat> so, um, and that's where you get crisis after crisis. That's why for a long time, the best thing you could do with IMF advice was to do the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whatever the opposite they said. Whatever they told you. Whatever yeah. they told you, you know, because yeah. it was just a disaster after disaster. They're a little bit better now, I think. Yeah. Not, not because I think they saw the error of their ways, but maybe it just got bored with the old way and tried something new. I don't know. Well, well <clears> nations, <throat> nations after a while, surely, once they've been stung. I mean, Indonesia, I'm sure, I don't know the circumstances of that, hadn't read, read the book. But, I mean, they're always going to be wary from here on in, aren't they, if they've been stiffed before? Well, it depends on how many options you've got. Because if you if you are going to the World Bank or the IMF, it was always US dollar loans. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, for uh, after crisis, after crisis, after crisis, uh, many, many developing nations – uh, decided we will never borrow again in US dollars. Yeah. Um, and That's uh, why BRICS might be attractive to a whole lot of could smaller be. Um, countries. Yeah. yeah. Could be. I mean, it, it's got a way to go, but I mean, at the moment, it's just a, a new payment system that they're working on very fast. Yeah. Um, it's not. A financial mo- that's the payment system is for trade but but you could you could see it sort of evolving into some kind of um, alternative development oh absolutely platform as well <coughs> I sure want to you know um take on board or uh, form a, a group of like-minded countries as a power block well it's happening it's actually yeah. happening I mean it, BRICS has been added that, that six countries of um added themselves to the BRICS. Well, actually, one of these is it. It's uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, mm. Egypt, Iran, and Ethiopia. Right. And and Argentina was also proposed, but, of course, with the new president. Delay, yep. That, that's, that's on hold. Um, but I think they were going to because <clears throat> the big problem Argentina's got, Argentina's debt is not that great. It's never really had punishing debt it's just it's just a great example of how important trust is in the markets nobody trusts argentina and so no. they won't go any, they won't go anywhere near it yeah so they're, they're not going to get anything uh, no they're, yeah. they're always in crisis because nobody for very good reason nobody trusts them <clears throat> but um yeah. trust is everything in the markets you've got to got to get trust but um that expanded bricks i saw it Jeffrey Sachs was talking about it. The G7 is about 29% of world G- GDP on a purchasing power basis. Yeah. The expanded BRICS is 37, 38 Okay. It's bigger. <laughs> I know. The world is shifting. Yeah. So why would you want to be part of that? <clears throat> well, if you – a lot of countries are assuming they would want to be part of that. Yeah, yeah. But the, it's got a long way to go in terms of the financial – you know, developing bond markets, government bond markets to provide an alternative to. to well, what if there's some sort of collapse then, debt collapse? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> this is what I've been thinking. I, <clears throat> what if, and this is pure speculation, um, what if uh, they got serious 
actually serious about a debt debt for equity swap. So let's get let's run through it. But the, the if there's a collapse in China, um, and there's there's one statistic with China which just completely amazes me, and I think it's still it's been a while since I looked at it, but I think it's still basically right. The money supply in China is two and a half times GDP, which okay. is ridiculous. Ridiculous. And the reason is because they're funneling enormous amounts of money into their insolvent banks. Okay, yeah. Their banks are... <clears throat> now, that's a game that cannot go on forever. And I think China has an option that the West doesn't, which is simply debt default and start again, because yeah. they own the banks. So they could simply say, right... And actually, Michael Hudson, he calls it the nuclear option. Okay. I, I saw him talking about it. <laughs> they could just do the, the, the you know, the time-altered technique of um, debt default and start again. But the West can't because they're all private banks. You can't default on private banks yeah, um, and think you're going to still have a private bank, right? It's just not going to happen. And so <clears throat> what happens if the West, um, and this is very sketchy, but actually gets serious about debt for equity swaps. One of the things which people are very frightened of and talked about is banks telling depositors, look, we can't can't pay your deposit, um, but we'll swap it for shares in the company. That's a debt for equity swap. That's possible, I suppose. That, yeah. that, w- that wouldn't go down well. No. But, but it, it might be a possible way out. One thing I've looked at is um, I wrote an article about is in Australia we con- constantly have um, crises in the farming sector, and there's endless you know every few years because of a price collapse or interest rate rise or whatever. There's these sort of very sad stories of farmers who've been on the on the land for. Yeah, generations walking off, yeah. walking off and okay <clears throat> and um it seems to me an absolute no-brainer and i've tried with various people to get some interest without success but including a relative of mine who's very senior in the national party um they just look at me blankly but it, it's an absolute no-brainer to switch the debt that farmers have to equity like if you want to um, uh, invest in the Australian stock market in Australian agriculture, you've virtually got no options. Right. There's nothing there. There's that would a, make every farm an option. Well, what, you, what, do you, what, what you've got three and a half trillion dollars in the um, superannuation funds, just enormous. There's yeah. more money in the super funds than they can find investments for in Australia, which is why a quarter of the money goes offshore. Because there just simply isn't enough investment in Australia, and that'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, the stock market is two and a half trillion, so the super itself is, you know, almost half the size again in the stock market. <clears throat> All you'd need is an equity vehicle. This is what I wrote about. Um, that's diversified both on product type and geography. So you. You're not committing yourself to one crop or one, yep. you know, 
type of livestock or whatever. And also you're not committing yourself to one area of Australia when, when you've got a lot of droughts and problems. You know, yep. <clears throat> you diversify it across. And then you go to the farmers and you say, well, how about swapping some of your debt, which creates enormous risk for you in bad times, for equity so that in bad times you don't have to pay anything and in good times you pay a healthy dividend. Because that's yeah. how, they, <clears throat> because in good times you pay a good, in strong dividend. I reckon they'd bite your hand off, because it would it would manage their risk, with the risk that, you know, um, puts them on the line every time there's you know a, a problem with weather or some collapse in commodity prices. Right? <clears throat> um, and that and would it's, be a, it's better for the the institution as well because. Having the guy just about to walk off the land at every time something goes south. That's true. It would help the banks. It's insecure, right? It's not very secure. No, the banks would be, it would have less risks as well. But it, you know, Australia has very long standing and deep and and successful primary industry. And yet you cannot invest in that primary industry as an equity, as a shareholder. I yeah. mean, there's there's a couple of companies you can buy into, but you're buying into that company. There's no diversified vehicle, um, which is how you'd want it because of the risks. Yeah, you'd, you'd reduce the risks, and you could fundamentally change in the way that Fonterra has has a magnificent track record of looking after dairy farmers. I mean, New Zealand shouldn't be number two in the world in dairy. You know, I mean. <clears throat> That's just brilliant. Yeah, piece of piece of. Um, it's punching above your punching above your weight. Kilo and, of um, milk solids. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's one. That's one equity equity swap, which would be that's in the sort of industry area. And then I've been wondering. I mean, in Australia, the biggest debt problem is in the household sector. It's one hundred twenty five percent of GDP, and most of that is is uh, uh, mortgage debt. Yep. Which I presume is similar in New Zealand. Yep, it is. Yep, for sure. And I was thinking, well, there actually is a debt for equity swap going on right now in that area. Um, there's advertisements in Australia on, I can't remember what they're called. They're, they're uh, for, for people who are older. Yep. Um, oh, yeah, those, those, um, the 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 mortgage uh, that you can take out that you pay back when you're gone uh, the estate well, it's, it's, it's a, yeah it's a debt for equity swap what what happens is they they pay down your mortgage or part yeah. of your mortgage yeah and then undertake to take the property after you're gone that's it yeah that's a that's a debt for equity swap yeah they they're paying they purchase they're using equity money to buy a proportion or all of the property. So that's an equity investment. Mortgage, what do they call it? Mortgage reverse mortgages. Yeah, reverse mortgage. That's it. Um, well, of course, the relatives don't and, like that because and reducing the no, sons and daughters because they miss out on the uh, possibly on the inheritance. Uh, possibly, on, but on the it, cash, you know. <clears> cash. But the people who do it are people under pressure from debt. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's yeah. a debt for equity swap. Yeah. Now maybe you could expand that out for people who get into trouble. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's just a, a random. Well, certainly board. as a first uh, port of call before everything nuking around you. 
Yeah, I mean, I de- you heard it here first. <laughs> okay, well, you know, if anything happens, we know we know where it came from. We um, can link it back to that. I mean, just generally speaking, it, it it's a it's an untold history in capitalism and what we call capitalism, which has yeah. got to be one of the most meaningless terms on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> good point. I mean, you know, what exactly? All, all you can say about capitalism is it's not communism, really. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. What the hell are you talking about? I mean, people use it all the time it, it, for all sorts of different meanings, and they, if you ask them the question, "What's the what kind of capital are you talking about in the capitalism?" You get a blank look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I haven't thought that. Yeah, but the, yeah. the the capital in capitalism, particularly in the English speaking world is at least a substantial portion of it is equity. Yeah. And it's, I think, one of the main reasons why English language economies have outperformed, because it's so much better. Yeah. It gets such so much better result, whereas debt underperforms. And uh, mm. so over time, the the countries with large equity markets will be, do much better. There are a couple of exceptions. There are a couple of other large ones that, well, China has a large stock market, but that's dominated by the Communist Party. Yeah. Japan also had a large stock market, but Japan's Japan and an exception to every economic rule going. Right. And, every, it, and also in Japan, um, all the debt is owed to Japan. It's completely sealed off. Uh, okay. Well, that's interesting. It's all hermetically sealed. Yeah, so, so they can manage that. Yeah, it sort of doesn't matter. It's yeah. weird, you know. Oh. <laughs> so the, Japan doesn't – you have to understand Japan is completely different from everybody else, you know. Yeah. Also, the Japanese global corporations that dominated in the 1980s, they get a lot of foreign exchange. You know, Toyota's, the Sony's. Yeah, the, you know, pouring in. Pouring in, so that <clears throat> that helps them in any foreign purchases they want to make. Um, yeah, yeah. So they, they they could do that. All right. Well, so uh, there's that, my theory. That's um, that's um, that's something to think about. Yeah. Okay. Um, really interesting. Hmm. Um, you can kind of see, in a way, how Western finance and business then has has evolved because of of that, because of the equity. Sort of yeah. Uh, I mean, way of doing things. Things are things can be, um, you know, like the, the industrial revolution probably wouldn't have continued, um, like it did without that that's system right. operating. Marx would have been right. Yeah, and he and he was wrong, and all those um, things that came from it. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a really an untold story, and you, and you just have to go to look at the names on the companies that emerged from that period, or yeah. the entities, you know. Australian. I mean, yeah, the, the way the, they're named. Yeah, yeah what, yeah, what it tells you. Mutual, yeah. provident, you know, society, trust, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, 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 what the words connote tell you what you need to know. Yeah. Share, share. And it, um, it, it's, it's, on the, it's on the better side of yeah. uh, it sounds better and it feels better, actually. It is better. <laughs> yeah. In, in, every, yeah. In, in every respect, it, it just yeah. gets a better, a more socially beneficial result. And it doesn't fit the political ideologies at all. Yeah, though when you're swapping cash, like um, you're talking about uh, before, if banks start to 
have trouble and turning your deposits into equity, hmm. you'd have to, you'd, you'd probably still, that would still bum a lot of people out because you have to believe that the bank can recover. Oh, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that's a good option. No, no, but um, you can see how that it's, it's more a des- it's more a desperate yeah, option. In that situation, you just probably want your money. Um, yeah. Well, that's what tends to happen. You get bank runs. Um, and but if you get a bank run, what the what one of the speculations is that you'll have a debt for equity swap. Yeah. Um, along the way somewhere. I don't think I don't know what or if that'll happen. It's possibly le- legally not pretty dodgy anyway. But I just those wanted- banks that recently collapsed in the US, you know, there's six or seven of them. The one the the one that, that supported all the, the sort of the tech businesses is one of the ones I'm thinking of. They they didn't do that, did they? Oh no, I don't think, um it's only something that people are talking about as as a kind of nightmare scenario. They understand it to be a nightmare scenario. Whereas I was I'm thinking, well, which would you rather have? No money at all like lose your deposit entirely or get shares in the um the the bank that at some point you can sell yeah that 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 better than if, having nothing no option better than having nothing right um i mean that it would also say that i mean i don't think it'll happen in australia because um well for a start they it's still kind of a I'm not quite sure the status of it, but there's still a government guarantee for deposits up to two hundred thousand. Yeah, we, we don't have that. We had that um, during the uh, meltdown, I think, in '08. Um, but I, I'm not sure if we still have. I think it might have been withdrawn, but there's something, something yeah. there, yeah, like that. Um, but it, but our super and you, unfortunately for New Zealand, yeah, we're, we're nowhere it, near you. No, nowhere near you. That, that's, that's the most inspired thing when you rattle off three trillion. I mean, that's. Three and a half. Well, sorry, three and a half. Sorry, Mr. Half. It's um, astonishing. It's it just is, astonishing. It's a mind-boggling amount of money. Well, it, it it makes Australia unique. Yeah. Well, because, isn't Norway in a, or Denmark or one of those countries in a similar situation where they No, because um, they're, they're sovereign wealth funds and the government, you know, owns it. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you've come across the phrase... Um, Unfunded pension liabilities. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, which may hit New Zealand at some point. Um, I but think it, it will probably s- will. Yeah, certainly hit Europe big time because of the aging, and will also hit America. Yeah, probably in the next few years. Basically, that's where governments simply don't have enough money to pay the pensions. Right now, yep. the absolute genius of our super system, which I don't think anybody's copied. Not, I think Chile tried to actually, and, and then couldn't make it work because it didn't work culturally. Um, is that every superannuate? It's their own money. Yeah, in their account. Yeah. It's not the government's, yeah. so the government can't stuff it up because it's not their money. Yeah, it's your money. Now you may not have enough to fund your old age or whatever, but you still you can still get the. The government pension, and of course, the pressure on the government pension. This is why they didn't in the first place. The pressure on the government pension is far, far less. You know, the the government doesn't have to come up with any anything like the amount of money that it did have to. That it would have had to if that three and a half trillion wasn't there. You know, yeah, and and it'll be seven trillion in ten years. You know, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's all 
it's a it's a stroke of genius if it takes decades to um, to work because it distributes all the money to the individual yeah yeah and they own it you know i've got to self-manage i even make my decisions you know <laughs> um, yeah yeah, not, so everyone's not, not not especially good ones, I should add. <laughs> okay, well, with your knowledge, um, so yeah, that that's uh, ownership over it rather than yeah. Well, it can't be unfunded because it's yeah. your money. Yeah, the government doesn't isn't required to fund it, so that, you know, it's it's genius. Um, well, lucky lucky country, right? Lucky in that respect, yes. Yeah. And and that will if the banks get in trouble here. With an extra trillion dollars in super, and um, you know the superannuation funds heavily big shareholders in the banks, then they'll find equity to bail the banks out. One assumes. Yeah. Okay, so that's a pressure um, safety valve right there. Yeah, for Australia, but I don't think it's for many yeah. other countries. No, okay. it's not for New Zealand. And um, your super is only—it's about. We could be part of Australia if we had to be. Well, that'd be a reason to be honest. <laughs> Show us the money, you'll say. Uh, sorry, can't. No. All uh, right. Anyway. Okay. Any more? Anything more to say about this before we go no, off and, and cogitate no, over what you've? Uh, no, you've no, I should. Promised? I should um, emphasise this is all wild speculation on my part. <laughs> well, it sounds reasonable. Yeah, I just, I just think, like putting the thought into people's minds. The debt is not the only option. Yeah. And that equity, the great untold story. Yeah. Is is potentially a, a way out when de- the debt markets get into trouble, which and it's hard to see how they won't. And they that might not be too far away. No. With three hundred percent in um global in GDP. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Well. All right, David James, Australian finance and business journalist. Thanks for coming on again. Great to Thank see you again. Okay. I'm sure we will again as well. Okay, cheers. Thank you for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to, either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so connect with us today.